Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed receives the Nobel Peace Prize. Did the committee make the right decision? And Chad's President Debbie is facing multiple threats to his regime. Is this key U.S. and French counterterrorism ally teetering? Plus, we discuss LGBTQ lives and rights in sub-Saharan Africa. What are the strengths and weaknesses of international advocacy to defend LGBTQ communities? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Before we get started, I have an exciting update to share. This year, CSIS Africa is going to record a few episodes of our podcast in front of a live studio audience. Join us for our first live recording on February 14th at the George Washington University. Stay tuned for additional updates by following us at CSIS Africa on Twitter and like us on Facebook. To our subscribers, if you'd like to host an Into Africa episode at your campus or institution, send us an email at africa at csis.org. In October, the Norwegian Nobel Prize Committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2019 to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali for his efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation, and in particular, for his decisive initiative to resolve the border conflict with neighboring Eritrea. The committee cited his outreach to Eritrea and his pledge to implement much needed reforms at home. However, the committee also noted that many challenges remain unresolved, and some people will think this year's prize is being awarded too early. Was the committee right to award the peace prize to Abiy, and what are the challenges ahead? Joining me to discuss Ethiopia and other topics are Rabi Kori Boulay, an AFP reporter and author of Love Falls on Us, a story of American ideas and African LGBTQ communities. Nila Goshal, a senior researcher at the Human Rights Watch, and Yosef Badawaza, senior regional advisor at Freedom House. Okay, Rabi, let's start with you. Make a case. Why was the committee right to hand Abi the Peace Prize? Well, there were a number of high-profile domestic political reforms that Abiy pursued right after he took office. This kind of a laundry list of things that people cite when they talk about what he's accomplished, freeing political prisoners, closing torture facilities, opening up the political space so that opposition parties could organize and take part in the political process. Those things were, I think, very concrete, but then also symbolic in that they signaled the direction that Abiy was intending to take the country during this transition leading up to the elections that are supposed to happen next year. Um, so that's the domestic angle. The kind of signature achievements that Abiy is most often praised for, especially by the international community, is the peace deal that you mentioned with Eritrea, which is kind of his second big initiative. And at least on paper, they have ended this two-decade-long stalemate that dates back to the border war in the late 1990s. And regardless of what 
people say about that process having stalled, I think it's undeniable that the risk right now of armed conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia has reduced. So in that sense, it's a very tangible step toward peace in the region. Uh, and then the last thing that Abi is often praised for is the willingness on his part to get involved in regional disputes or conflicts or crises, Sudan being a high-profile recent example. Um, he's also been involved in mediating South Sudan's peace process. Again, both of those obviously are not resolved, but he is making an effort to get involved, trying to assert Ethiopia as a regional power broker and as potentially a force for peace throughout the Horn of Africa. Yusuf, maybe you agree with Robbie. Can I ask you, was the detractors right? Was it too soon? What's your thinking on this? I think I largely agree with what Robbie was saying. I think the symbolic effect of what Abi was able to do under very difficult circumstances were really uh, remarkable and they deserve recognition. But I take the Nobel Peace Prize Award as uh, both aspirational in, in, in its consideration and also uh, a, a good recognition and also uh, as a way to raising the expectations that the international community and even uh, domestically have uh, on what Abi can do in Ethiopia and in the region. I think if, if why many detractors raise that as a reason for this to being too early is that one, the, the changes that he was uh, able to bring in Ethiopia were not yet consolidated. And even when it comes to the peace treaty, the peace agreement with Eritrea, the dividend for that has not been fully appreciated both uh, for the joint relationship and particularly in a domestic situation of Eritrea. And it hasn't brought a lot of change in the position of the Eritrean government when it comes to treating its citizens. But I think that peace deal in itself changed the, the peace dynamic in the region. There was a significant improvement of relations, for example, between Ethiopia and the Somali federal government and Djibouti and Eritrea, Sudan, uh, were able to at least talk in terms of uh, establishing long-term peace. The Ethiopia-Somali-Eritrea uh, tripartite agreement that, that they, they signed in September last year was, I would say, a direct result of this normalization of relations between Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia and also Sudan. I think one last point is that this peace deal brought Eritrea more into reintegration in the in the international uh, political scene. The UN sanctions have been lifted, with Ethiopia uh, being uh, on the forefront of that. Yeah, I th I agree with you. I, I mean, I certainly think he's on really solid ground. I have this different take on the peace prize when it comes to the domestic issues, where I actually think they gave it to him too late. Because I think that aspirational side that you're talking about, Yusuf, is absolutely right. And I would have loved to seen him get that early in 2018 when there was a lot of uh, Abimania and Avi's, you know, statement of love wins. But over the last couple of months, I think we have seen some of his own instincts when it comes to his own political detractors. And it's been concerning to me. 
Jawar Mohammed, who is a very large presence on Oromo Media and who came out for Abi initially. Now they're in a tiff. And I think Abi sort of tapped into EPRDF's ability to deploy military officers. And there was a huge standoff. I thought that was really concerning. Um, I don't think Abi's handled the IDPs the right way. It's not his fault, uh, at least initially. The numbers of IDPs were growing. Now we're at 3 million. But some reporting from NGOs suggests that they're trying to force people back prematurely. And so, you know, we're, we're transitioning from what Abi's trying to do to change Ethiopia or remake from the old regime. But some of the things that we're seeing him do now, um, I wonder about when push comes to shove, which is, you know, when he's under stress, how he will behave. But you're certainly welcome to disagree with me. I think I'd love to hear from you and Robbie. What are the things that we still need to do to make good on the promise that he has? And then is there a role for the international community? I think to your point that you just made, increasingly there is a disconnect between the international image of Abi that I think was cemented during the Abi mania time when people were very excited about the initial changes he pursued and what's happening in the country now. So I arrived there in June, actually on the very day that there were these high-profile assassinations of political leaders in the Amhara region, and the army chief of staff was killed. And since then, we have seen some worrying signs on the human rights fronts um, in terms of how political opponents are being treated, mass arrests, uh, people being charged or at least held under very controversial anti-terrorism legislation, all things that would seem to go against this narrative that had taken hold during the first year of Abi's rule. Um, in terms of what Abi needs to do to, to prove going forward that he was deserving of this prize, I think his legacy is going to be defined almost exclusively by the way that elections are conducted next year. Really, if those can take place in a credible way and to be seen as credible with a result that's accepted by the Ethiopian political class, then Abi will be able to claim that he has effectively carried out this transition that he was empowered to carry out when he was appointed by the EPRDF. If, as is a potential outcome, the security problems that Ethiopia is facing and the divisions within the Ethiopian political class and the sort of lack of interest in endorsing the national project of Ethiopia Tip prevails, then I think Abi's legacy as somebody who effectively managed this transition is going to be completely undermined, and the Nobel Committee might have second thoughts about having given him this prize. You said, what's the role for the U.S.? I think Robbie's right. Like A lot of this is going to hinge on this election. Um, but Abi has, I think, been very good about reaching out to the international community for assistance. Um, and you know, what is the right response? What are the things that we all can do? Because I think what he's trying to achieve is commendable. And you know, anyone would have said this is the reforms that Ethiopia has needed. But what are the things that the international community can do to be helpful here? I'll go back to to that point. But I I think in the first place, some of the biggest challenges Abi and the people around him are facing uh, come from within their their own political class. I think the Jawar phenomenon you mentioned is one part of a bigger and much complex Oromo political dynamic. There is also the big question of what the fate of EPRDF will be uh, in the next couple of days and weeks and how uh, it positions itself to compete in the elections in a way that would steer it to be a positive 
part of this this reform process that Abi is trying to push. So I think among all this process, the support uh, the international community could provide is, I think, finding and supporting moderating voices because you see all this polarization of views coming into this capturing this transition moment and then staying relevant in Ethiopia's political scene while eyeing the elections and scoring some uh, more concrete results. So for me, the international community could focus on institutions that are not necessarily vying political offices and highlighting their role as voices of reason that they can moderate when disputes arise. They can uh, establish themselves as credible voices among the community. One of, I think, in my view, the biggest deficits for many governments in in Ethiopia, including uh, this one, is the trust deficit that they have among the, the, the population. Whatever they say typically falls on deaf ears. I want to shift to Chad. President Debbie has been in power since 1990. He's a key ally for the United States, for France, for other Western powers, um, fighting extremism in the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin. But there's been some cracks in his regime. A fantastic piece recently by Philip Kleinfeld in the new humanitarian, formerly IRIN, about problems multiplying in Debbie's Chad. And When I look at countries and try to think about regime stability, I always use uh, a pillars of stability framework. And for me, this is arguable. I think about, for Chad, support from the French, the health of the economy, especially oil receipts, peace with its neighbors, and arguably complacent population. And I can make the argument while that first pillar is standing strong, um, the others have become really wobbly. Now, Robbie, you... When you were in your old position at the World Review Politics, you did talk about the gathering storm in Chad and some of these rebel incursions. It got really serious back in February where French airplanes bombed a uh, rebel incursion uh, at Debbie's request. That's not the first time the French have come in uh, over the past decade and done that. But how bad do you think this is? Do you think the French are getting any second thoughts? Well, I think any kind of security challenge that manifests itself in this way for Chad is really troubling for Debbie on two levels. One is just an obvious sign of weakness and calls into question his ability to control not just the north of the country where those rebels threaten from southern Libya, but also other security threats that he might see in the east. I think on a more fundamental level, when the Chadian military is seen to be weak and seen to require French assistance even to maintain peace within its own borders, it undermines this kind of tacit agreement that Chad has with the West, which is that Chad, because of the strength of its military, because of its prowess, especially vis-a-vis other countries in the region, has really become an essential player in maintaining peace or at least trying to establish peace, for example, in northern Mali uh, after the French intervened in 2013, and also in countries that have been affected by Boko Haram. And so the international community has been happy to receive that assistance from Chad and in return has given Debbie a bit of a free hand to counter some of these domestic threats that you mentioned, frustration over the economy, mismanagement of oil revenue, um, frustration over the lack of progress in terms of expanding political space. Debbie 
up to this point has been able to use repressive tactics to keep the population in line and to kind of mitigate those dangers. I mean, the internet was shut down for a full year. Right, exactly. And nobody said much about it (laughs) in Paris or Washington because they rely on the Chadian military to at least try to keep the peace regionally. Let me just open it up. Is there anything the group recommends that folks should be watching? What, What should we be monitoring as we sort of try to evaluate Debbie's staying power? Well, I just have a comment on Chad, actually, um, based on my position as LGBT rights researcher at Human Rights Watch. Chad in 2017 criminalized consensual same-sex conduct for the first time. This had never been on the books before. It wasn't like many countries in the in the region in which these kinds of laws are colonial holdovers. Now, I'm not enough of an expert on Chad to say this with any degree of certainty, but uh, one can speculate that when regimes are feeling unstable, they target vulnerable populations. They scapegoat them and they try to unify populations around um, this idea of a group within being an enemy. And so one of my concerns is that in Chad, this could be the reason, one of the reasons why this law was passed in 2017, and one of the reasons why for the first time this year, we documented people actually being arrested under that law. That uh, that was a first in Chad, and it was you know something quite disturbing to see. So I hope that we don't continue to see uh, marginalized communities essentially thrown under the bus if the regime is in fact feeling unstable. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation and holds true for a number of countries that I will talk about in just a minute. And maybe I'll just add a couple other things. We talked about the internet, as you said, persecution of marginalized communities. But we've also seen within his government um, the elevation of his children. The ethnic Zagawan circle and the Debbie family circle seems to be um, taking more and more positions. And usually for me, that's an indication. It sometimes has to do with succession, obviously, but it often has to do with a feeling of distrust that you can't share power more broadly. For our deep dive today, we have the good fortune to talk about Robbie's new book, Love Falls on Us, a story of American ideas and African LGBT lives. I really enjoyed it, Robbie. I read it within a a couple of hours over the weekend. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you decided to write this? First, thank you for saying that. It's very nice to hear. So I started reporting on these issues issues being LGBT rights in the region when I was based in West Africa, starting in 2011. And I was writing primarily for the Associated Press and a number of other daily news sites or wire services. And so the stories that I was generally being asked to write were about the things that you would imagine would be of interest to international editors when For example, repressive pieces of legislation were introduced when gay-friendly bars were raided, when activists faced security threats or other dangers. And my fear as I continued to do those stories was that I was contributing to a narrative that I think is, is prevalent, which is that sexual minorities in the region are under siege, that they are defenseless, that they are on the run, that really the best possible outcome for them would be to seek asylum in a Western country. And and the reason I think that's so dangerous is because it gives people the impression that movements are not actually forming domestically within these countries and that there are not people well positioned within places like Liberia or Cameroon or Cote d'Ivoire, which are the three countries the book looks at to lead this fight on their own terms uh, and to 
really be the ones who are lobbying governments or trying to change minds domestically when it comes to how people think about sexual minority populations. There have been several human rights programs hosted here and I had the privilege to attend some of them. And I realized being a lesbian is not illegal. You have the right to your own feelings. So they should be treated fairly as the way they treat every human. Because we are all human, no matter our sexual difference. I have hope that it will happen, but I know it will take time. So I wanted to put together a book that would add some texture to our understanding of what these communities actually look like, that would amplify the voices of people who choose to stay in their countries, uh, as opposed to those who seek asylum and leave. Because I think in the absence of those voices, when there is an impression that nothing is happening domestically, people outsiders become emboldened to intervene in ways that are potentially dangerous. So that was one of the main motivations. I also happened to be living in Liberia in 2011 when the Obama administration announced that it was going to make the promotion of LGBT rights a specific plank of its foreign policy. Uh, and this was announced via a presidential memorandum, and then Hillary Clinton went to the Human Rights Council and declared gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights, and really elevated the visibility of these issues for U.S. foreign policy. And I was interested in reporting on what that actually meant for people who were based in this region. Well, that's one of the most interesting parts about the book, right? I mean, that's probably the biggest policy part of the book mm -hmm. is when the U.S. makes a position on particularly in LGBTQ communities, there's this vulnerability that it could create, but at the same time, I think in the book you show how it you know, may open up funding or provide some sort of spotlight. Neela, this is your job. How do you balance this? How do you um, advocate, promote, and defend the rights of marginalized communities at the same time not put them in a position where they're more vulnerable? Yeah, I think this is a really delicate dance. And one of the things that I thought was so important about Robbie's book was the way in which it demonstrated both the sort of benefits and the pitfalls of the international eye that fell on LGBT people in Africa in the last decade. Of course, that's also when I started working on this issue in 2011 as well. And so we've been, as Human Rights Watch, working to figure out what our place is in this movement and how to you know follow the basic principle of do no harm and attempt to do some good along the way. When it comes to the Obama administration, just to comment on their role, I think in some ways they, they get an unfair rap. And I think uh, Robbie discusses this in his book, um, that often it was the Western media that, that uh, sort of jumped in and sensationalized the issues, putting Obama on the spot when he traveled to Africa to make comments about things that weren't really at the, at the center of the issues that should have been under discussion in those particular countries. Um, but I also think that no matter what Obama had done on these issues, governments themselves in the region would have spun it um, to their advantage. So even if Obama had been fairly quiet in the way that he had pursued these issues and Hillary Clinton had been fairly quiet, um, these governments still might have found it advantageous to create a narrative of um, you know, Western imperialism and neo-imperialism based around the promotion of LGBT rights. But I also think that the Obama administration did a number of things that, that were um, helpful and that included supporting domestic LGBT organizations in a number of countries, elevating their voices, bringing them into circles of, um, of advocacy spaces where they could dialogue with the government as well as be part of a broader human rights community raising these issues. And that's part of what we tried to do at Human Rights Watch as well. So 
One thing we try to do first is we always try to work with partner organizations on the national level. We don't try to be a lone voice in the wilderness um, speaking out on these issues and ignoring the fact that there are domestic constituencies that have been speaking out on them um, or living the realities much longer than we've been aware of them. So uh, we play a role in amplifying those voices. Robbie describes a scene in the book in which I went to to advocate with the Cameroonian gendarmerie around their arrests of LGBT people. And I went with a Cameroonian activist um, who unfortunately was killed um, several months later, but who played such an essential role in saying to these you know, men sitting in military fatigues, look, we're all Cameroonian. Of course, I wasn't. We, we, the rest of us, are all Cameroonian here. We all know that these people exist in our society. I think another critical issue, and maybe this is one point in which um, the U.S. government has sometimes gotten it a little bit wrong, is that we try to mainstream LGBT issues in a broader context of human rights issues. So, for instance, um, with regard to Uganda, we have never done a standalone report on violations against LGBT people in Uganda because we think that in some ways there has been excess media attention to that particular issue, which no doubt deserves attention, but at the expense of the other ways in which the Ugandan police, the Museveni administration, are completely unaccountable and violate international law in in all regards. And so we try to highlight these issues simultaneously to make clear that organizations such as ours you know, aren't solely elevating the issue of LGBT rights, that we're interested in human rights, and that LGBT rights are, in fact, part of a broader spectrum of human rights. And that makes a lot of sense. I, I really do like that the book continues to talk about African agency. And one of your informants, Robbie, ends with the quote, uh, we need to find our own champions. I was going to give this podcast title like, all you need is love and how deep is your love. But I thought that was that was great. I mean, and it really, I think, wrap up the book nicely. And uh, Yusuf, I was wondering about your thoughts about African agency and, and you know, the importance of of Africans finding their own champions for this. I think you're right. The importance of having African agency and having a voice within uh, the the community really goes a long way. I think one of uh, the the very first things to do is to to challenge that this the rights of LGBTI uh, community is uh, a Western import. I, import. I think uh, challenging that uh, narrative that is very prevalent in many of uh, the countries in Africa is is critical. I think uh, in ter- when talking about finding uh, our own voices, is it's about getting those in places of authority, in places of power within the African government, civil society, to take ownership of these issues. But there is also the cultural aspect of it that these leaders, thought leaders, are constrained by. So, Neela, uh, maybe we don't want to single out Uganda, but I thought that it was in the news right now. Uh, there's been this recent round of anti-LGBT rhetoric in Uganda and raids on the community. Uh, do you want to just say a couple words on what's happening and where, what you think needs to happen? Yeah, I can. And just to not uh, single out Uganda exclusively, I would also just note that there are a number of other countries that are of deep concern right now. Those include Tanzania, Egypt, um, even countries that are a little bit off the radar, like Senegal, where LGBT people are being arrested on a fairly regular basis, and those should be getting attention as well. Um, In Uganda, what's been happening lately has been concerning, although, again, I think to some extent it has been a little bit sensationalized. 
We've had government officials like the Minister of Ethics and Integrity, Simon Lokoto, who have announced that they're going to bring back the anti-homosexuality bill, which was passed in, in 2014 and included a, you know, an array of, of, of horrible um, uh, kind of provisions that criminalized people for a range of things related to so-called promotion of LGBT rights, um, developing, forming organizations, participating in organizations. But Lokoto also said that he was going to reintroduce the death penalty for consensual same-sex conduct, which is, of course is a, is a horrible prospect. Now, he was immediately contradicted by the office of the president, as well as other government officials who said, no, no, this bill is not coming back in any form, including with the death penalty, because the laws we already have, which, by the way, include a life imprisonment for consensual same-sex conduct, are sufficient. Now, we, you know, we don't really know who to believe. And um, I wouldn't trust either of those perspectives because um, it all depends on which way the political winds blow. If the authorities in Uganda find it politically expedient at some point down the road to bring back a version of the bill, they may well do so. Uh, but it doesn't you know, seem like they're tending in that direction right now. Nonetheless, they are using the laws that are on the books um, to repress LGBT people. And there are two recent cases, one in which 16 people were arrested um, after they were almost attacked by a mob. And instead of going after the mob, the authorities arrested the victims and then subjected them to forced anal examinations, which is a horrific form of torture, which does not prove anything about someone's sexual behavior. So there are you know, worrying things happening in Uganda. And I think the international community needs to be attuned to these things, but needs to focus on the real concrete issues that are happening and push for concrete solutions, like a ban on forced anal exams, um, like the release of the people who are being charged with common nuisance, paying attention to the potential return of the bill, but not getting caught up in that at the expense of everything else that's actually happening. Great. Thank you. Robbie, I'm going to give you the last word. We have just a couple minutes left, but what's really of value in your book is the way that you contextualize gay culture and community in sub-Saharan Africa. I love the quote where it's, the argument isn't that homosexuality is a Western import, but homophobia is a Western import. And there's this nuanced, layered understanding of homosexuality in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So is it possible for the U.S. and other policymakers to engage in that layered? I mean, are we just going to mess it up? I mean, it's complex and it's mm -hmm. fragile in some respect. Um, but what are your recommendations in the way to sort of be appreciative of how dynamic and deep the context is? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I think that's really telling is that when you speak to officials who were involved in the rollout of this policy in 2011, they were really caught off guard by the backlash that it generated. I focus in the book on Liberia, but in a number of countries in the region. And I think that speaks to the lack of direct contact that embassies had with local organizations that were operating in these settings, because those activists could have told you from the get-go that this is going to this was going to be controversial and this was going to potentially put them in danger. Um, so one thing I think that has improved since the rollout of this policy is um, deeper interfacing between embassy officials and these organizations so that the organizations are able to provide input and their feedback is taken on board when the U.S. does think about uh, engaging on LGBT issues, whether it's organizing a pride night or doing something else um, that's, that's in line with what, at least under Obama, was a very concerted initiative. I think one of the tensions that Neela got at uh, in her response was this tension between amplifying the voices of marginalized people versus presuming to speak for them. And this policy, in its best 
form is the former approach, right? And if you actually know who these organizations are, then you know which voices you need to amplify. And so I think one of the best things that U.S. embassies and the State Department can continue to do is to pursue deeper contacts with um, LGBT organizations that are active uh, so that they're really the ones taking the lead on trying to improve their standing in their countries and to expand their rights. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.